Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Psychology 360 podcast. Today, it is my pleasure to have on Dr. Ron Mottern. And uh, Ron, correct me if that I pronounce your last name correctly. That's correct. Good. Okay. Now, Ron is, is running an institute, which is the uh, Modern, Modern Institute for Mind-Body Wellness. And uh, you specialize in stress-related issues, substance use disorders, and you work with uh, justice-involved clients. Uh, you've worked in all levels of psychiatric care, clinical psychology, and people, as, as I mentioned, coming to you from the criminal justice system. So it is a very interesting um, type of clients. And Today, I wanted to discuss with you uh, some of the experiences you've had in the last two years and uh, your way of approaching these high stress times, these times when uh, we find we're living through one crisis after the other and how people can keep, you know, stay sane in these difficult times. And I would be very happy to hear a little bit about your, you know, your philosophy of healing as we say, as well as how you approach uh, the psychological work you do. Okay, great. Uh, broad areas there. <laughs> uh, just going to jump right into it. You know, um, stress management is what I sort of do, and I do that. I like to focus on that. I, I do a lot of other things. Like you said, I'm a licensed chemical dependency counselor, so I do a lot of work in that area, a lot of work with uh, criminal justice and what have you. But I like to focus on the stress because, you know, this is a time when everybody's stressed. It's, you know, uh, we've had that going on for a while with the pandemic. Uh, prior to the pandemic here in the U.S., we had periods of civil unrest that were going on and what have you that we hadn't seen and hadn't seen in quite a while. Other parts of the world are more familiar with those, but we weren't so much until it started to happen. Uh, Seattle, Portland, uh, Maryland, places like that having uh, having uh, intense civil unrest. And of course, now we have a uh, civil unrest due to the uh, due to the war in Ukraine. Right. So so now it's not only uh, we've sort of calmed down here with the civil unrest, but now we've got uh, now we've got that situation going on in your backyard. So um, that still is affecting us here as well. The um, uh, even though I work for the uh, Institute, uh, I run that. I also work for the state of Texas and I uh, work for uh, Health and Human Services Disaster Behavioral Health Service right now. And the grant that we're currently working on uh, that actually ends the end of the month. So I'm in the job market, if anybody's out there. Uh, but uh, <laughs> the grant that we're working on right now was the COVID-19 grant. And um, one of the things that we came up with when we were uh, really looking at this and how it affected people was this idea of cumulative stress, okay, which is different, a little different than chronic stress, okay. You know, chronic stress is anything that ever, you know, any stress that we have that lasts for, you know, six months or more, right, six months is sort of the clinical definition of chronic. Uh, so we have all kinds of chronic stressors. But what we started to see as the pandemic sort of continued was people who were pretty good at dealing with chronic stress 
started to become a little frayed around the edges. We had professionals who were starting to have anxiety, depression problems, anger problems, things like that. And we're talking about doctors, nurses, people in high stress jobs anyway. But the longer the pandemic sort of drug out, we started to see burnout in those areas and, and things of that nature. So we came up with this idea of cumulative stress, which is just chronic stress, piled on top of chronic stress, piled on top of chronic stress. So um, if you were to imagine just sort of a graph, you know, uh, just on the X axis, that would sort of just be chronic stress. It would just be a straight line because, you know, it goes up and we implement stress management and then it goes back down and then it'll go up again. So, so we sort of get a straight line on that. But with cumulative stress, what happens is, you know, that that line is going this way, right, at a, at a very steep angle, because what we have is we have that stress, but before we can do anything about it, then we have another stressor on top of that, and then another stressor on top of that. And so it continues to rise. And so one of the things that we were doing at the state, and I've over the past year, I've done about 40 presentations to 1,800 different people uh, directly, primarily, uh, across the state uh, to get that message out is, uh, you know, just what is cumulative stress uh, to remind people just how bad stress is, because we tend to forget how bad stress is. We all know it's not good. We all know we don't need it, but we um, tend to forget uh, the way it really impacts our lives. And then what to do about that. So uh, self-care measures, things we can do to reduce that stress. And the message that I've really been preaching is we have to adopt a daily routine for stress management. We can't wait till we feel stressed because by the time we feel stressed, we're already behind the curve on this. We're waiting for another shoe to drop, right? We, we, we're too far behind once we feel stressed. In fact, the way I sort of put it is that, you know, stress is like dehydration. And uh, once you feel thirsty, you're already dehydrated, right? I mean, thirst is the body's response to dehydration. So it's the same thing with stress. Once I feel stressed, I'm already too stressed. I'm already behind the curve. And especially in this day of cumulative stress that we have, like I said, we had in this country, we had the civil unrest going on to begin with. Then we had COVID-19 on top of that, which the rest of the world shared with the, with the pandemic. And uh, now we're sort of starting to calm down on both of those, but we have more civil unrest uh, in Europe with Ukraine. And uh, we have the people who were, you know, the millennials who uh, aren't familiar with uh, these sorts of things that they haven't been around in a while. You know, people my age, you know, the old USSR is a devil we know. Uh, we, we're used to we're used to dealing with it. We lived through the Cold War. Uh, these days, we're getting people who are younger. Who um, I was reading something yesterday that said, uh, you know, they were scared to death of what was going on over there, and as well they should be. Uh, but at the same time, it's something that uh, maybe some of us who have lived through that aren't uh, aren't quite as excited and stressed about it as as they are. Certainly, the people going through it are. Certainly, the people in other countries surrounding it as the refugees, uh, refugees make their way out of Ukraine. Uh, certainly they are, they're feeling the stress as well. That's another thing, you know, in disaster behavioral health, we use that disaster proximity model, right? So certainly the closer you are to the epicenter, then the more the intensity and stress is. But that doesn't mean just because you're away from it, you're not experiencing the stress, right? It may become a little less, but you're still gonna experience it, uh, experience it as you go. So, yes. uh, 
Oh, I was just I was just going to say, especially, you know, especially in this uh, hyper connected era when you have uh, people sharing videos uh, and, you know, people are, are seeing these things, they go viral, they have quite the impact on the psyche. And I have to say, uh, it's interesting you mentioned the generational gap with the Ukraine situation. Uh, here, here in Czech, we are uh, a little bit on the biased side in terms of the population, as the, the, there is a general paranoia uh, from before due to the historical, um, you know, invasions that occurred. The you know latest was 1968, uh, but there was you know living. Uh, under the communist uh, regime here, uh, people were always very afraid and mindful of what they say or what they thought maybe. Um, but so here we have a totally different perce perception. In fact, I was more on the optimistic side. I didn't think uh, that uh, it would go as far as it did. Definitely not. Others here were actually more realistic looking back at it, where I was thinking, well, they they may be a little paranoid, but in reality, they, you know, they had a, a better, uh, you know, better view of things than uh, a lot of us Westerners, actually, and the people that may be outside. Um, but yeah, you, you mentioned, you mentioned some interesting things there. The, the cumulative stress is something I hadn't heard of before. I mean, I know chronic stress, as you said, but what is the baseline, though? Because my, my view is that we live, you know, generally the baseline in our society is already kind of a stressful one because we have, uh, you know, we have to compete. We have to do a lot of uh, a lot of things that uh, that can be stressful, pay bills, pay the rent. So we always have that, you know, that stress shock. And do you see like, uh, you, you know, we there's also a talk about, you know, the, the idea of you stress versus distress. And I would say that the uh, stress that people have been experiencing in the last two years was probably more the distress because there was no clear uh, out, you know, exit strategy. There were many uh, little branches of hope that were, you know, given out, but then they were, you know, they, they didn't always come through. So that was the biggest thing. And we've seen situations here. I don't know how it was in Texas, but here we had a pretty something that was uh, close to, I don't want to say martial law, but, you know, we were closed in in the various uh, districts. We couldn't exit. We needed some kind of uh, uh, like, a, you know, paper that said, where are you going to? Why are you exiting your <laughs> little county? And uh, it was quite bizarre. Uh, it was quite, uh, I never expected to see that. And I have to say that, you know, when we talk about stress, well, people who are chronically stressed very often show memory issues. And, and this may be random, but I've been speaking, uh, I, I cannot find a single person who I've asked this question who has a very clear memory of the last two years, meaning... Uh, I very often, even today, uh, doing docu, you know, doing taxes and things. So my accountant asked, uh, "What about the 2021?" And I, I kept thinking, "Where, you know, it was 2020 last year?" So, <laughs> and I find more, 
you know, more people, a lot of people I know have the same experience. There's these huge memory uh, lapses from the last two years. And did you see anything with that? And also just because I'm putting a lot there, but in terms of the baseline of stress, what, what do you think? Well, I think that this really showed us as we went into the as we went into the pandemic, especially how close to the edge we actually were and how much stress we actually had accumulated, because it didn't take much more to actually sort of put us over the edge. Now, a lot of that and we saw this we saw this in the mental health numbers, right? Right after the pandemic started, we saw a spike in mental health issues. Okay, Uh, the research I've been reading lately says that that is down, that is down to about pre-pandemic levels now, okay? So we had that spike, and also a lot of that spike is related to uh, the lockdown, right? Like you were saying, you know, these draconian measures that were sort of uh, in in the U.S. sort of illegally instituted, uh, but uh, where you had to uh, go into lockdown, and that caused businesses to close down all over the country and what have you, which increased stress because then you have economic stress on top of that. It was just sort of, you know, all systems in our society were affected by, by COVID-19. But uh, uh, what we saw, like I said, was I think just how close we were to the edge anyway, that we were living, as you said, with all of these stressors, with work stress, with relationship stress, with family stress, all of these things going on. And it didn't take much more before we, you know, when the, when the pandemic hit, that really sort of put us over the edge. And like I said, that's sort of what, sort of what got us thinking about uh, cumulative stress, because it was like, well, people are, even though we have all these chronic stressors, people were doing pretty good at, uh, at uh, taking care of it, right? They were doing pretty good with their stress management. And then we had something now, COVID-19, certainly because it exacerbated all of those other stressors. Uh, I think that was, it was a major stressor. I don't, I don't want to uh, l- limit its effect on anything, but uh, we did see uh, all of that go up. Like I said, much of it related to the lockdown and uh, that we had here. And um, now it's sort of starting to drop as those sorts of things go back down, right? As, as the country started to open back up in Texas, we opened up fairly uh, early, opened up several months ago. The governor opened up the state. So uh, that dropped here. We're able to move around. You know, we didn't have a lockdown on us anymore. People were starting to look at the variants and starting to make their own decisions on what what they thought was uh, life-threatening and not. And uh, so we saw those issues go down. We saw those mental health numbers start to drop. The mental health numbers, the substance use numbers, the suicide numbers, all starting to drop. Let me say, except for eating disorders. Uh, Eating disorders was one thing that we saw that uh, went up four times its normal rate during the pandemic and it stayed it stayed there and the reason that it a lot of the reason that it went up was because of the lockdown but in a different sort of way and that's because during, during the lockdown families were forced to you know huddle in place and stay together so they started to notice the behaviors associated with people who had the disorder and so so they noticed those and the numbers just spiked when that happened uh, not that eating disorders aren't <clears throat> weren't affected anyway, uh, because that's part of what happens with stress. Like when we have when we have chronic stress or even acute stress, then uh, that affects the cognitive executive functions of the brain, which affect regulation. 
So we want to eat more anyway, okay? Which don't necessarily turn into eating disorders, but you know, uh, we talk about the COVID-15, the COVID-20, that 15 or 20 pounds everybody's gained during, uh, during lockdown and during COVID-19. Um, but uh, that's something that happens. So the brain is affected during that. Like you said, you were talking about uh, people not remembering things. Uh, because remember, when we have long-term stress, right, when we have that long-term stress going on, that atrophies the brain structures, right? I mean, we know that we have the research on that. We can look at the pictures. We can see that it reduces that hippocampal volume and function, right? And hippocampus is learning and memory. So uh, that's affected uh, by the stress that we're under. Also, any acute stress that we have, that prevents neurogenesis as well. You know, so that's where we get that statement, stress makes us stupid, right? So, so we have that intense stress and we forget everything because we didn't really uh, store anything in learning, learning or memory. So uh, certainly that, uh, um, there's a physiological explanation for that as well because of all of that stress that we've been under. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure that that's quite the same. I'm sure it's a contributing factor to it. I'm not sure it's quite the same thing as you're talking about. Uh, I know exactly what you're talking about as well, right? It's like, I keep thinking last year was 2020 as well. You know, it's, it's we lost a couple of years somewhere there. I don't, I don't know where those went. It doesn't seem like it's been that long, but uh, it's an interesting phenomenon. Uh, it's interesting. It's happening here. It's happening there. Uh, it'll, it, it would make a good phenomenological study, right? When we talk Absolutely. about phenomenology and what have you, that would make, that would do, make a good one <laughs> to look at that, the loss of the loss of time during the pandemic. Yeah. And as you said, the, this is a crucial point to take home for the listeners. Like the over, you know, overstressing is literally burning your brain. So, and this brings me to the most important part, which I wanted to discuss with you is exactly how you integrate, like, what are the techniques? What are the things that uh, you found in your research? And um, like what people can do as a routine? Because you mentioned a lot of people put on uh, extra weight. I have to say, honestly, my personal uh, experience during the lockdown, I actually got more fit. But uh, <laughs> my, my alcohol intake went up. So I don't know where if those two balance each other. <laughs> so um but anyways that that was uh, a way of the the reason i'm saying that for the fitness like to go running and do more physical activity was also to keep me grounded in some way and uh i found it actually more difficult during that time to do things like before the pandemic i had a much more solid uh let's say meditation routine uh, things of that nature that during that time became more challenging. Uh, and I don't know what that was. I mean, if it was the stress or if it was just uh, a lot of uh, this kind of hopelessness that was uh, instilled, that was kind of in the air. Um, I don't know. There was a lot of, uh, of pain, a lot of uh, uh, misery that came about. And, and I have to say that you what you said is true. It was a lot of it because of the policies, not just the disease. And a lot of people had less work or no work. And uh, yeah, and so it was, it was bad. So. 
Yes, uh, just to just to sort of go back to the to the stress thing and the weight thing and what have you. Congrat, you're, you're, I think you may be in the minority there, Simon, on, on the weight loss during. Uh, certainly, we did see, however, like you said, your alcohol intake went up. That is something that we saw as well. However, we saw that uh, substance use disorders not so much uh, increasing and staying increased, but substance use going up. So, uh, so we did see that uh, going on. And, um, you know, the, the thing about the, about the weight and what we've learned is all of these things are sort of related and they're sort of uh, evolutionary adaptations because, you know, the, uh, the biggest uh, chronic stressor we had historically was famine, right? So, you know, that's the biggest one. So the body devised ways to uh, help us through the famine, which is, which is to say, if I restate that a minute, those people who have had these adaptations survived, right? It's another way to say that. But uh, what the body did was it started to produce cortisol, right? It's one of those things that produced that hormone cortisol, which helped us to put on weight, okay? During that time of chronic stress, because the body think, you know, the brain thinks that it's a famine. So we wanna put on weight. And not only do we wanna put on weight, but we want to, do things like eat high caloric foods, sugars, fats, things like that. We want to decrease our physical activity because we don't want to burn all that fat off that we're trying to put on. And it also shortens the sleep cycle and things like that. So sleep, very important to mental health as well. So I think some of those things that were going on that you were sort of talking about, right, makes it very difficult for us to maintain any sort of, uh, sort of self-discipline uh, that would keep us fit because the body is the body and the brain are trying to kill us. I mean, you know, historically, evolutionarily, we, we evolved this way to help us survive things like chronic stress in a famine. However, these days we have no famine in the developed countries, right? That's not something that we're worried about. So now what we get is that, you know, we get all that weight put on in unhealthy areas of the body. And then we start to develop coronary disease, right? That ischemic heart disease, peripheral artery disease. And at least in the US, that's the number one killer is uh, coronary disease. So, uh, so the things that were uh, designed evolutionarily to uh, help us survive are now actually uh, killing us as well. So we've seen a lot of that go on during the, uh, during the pandemic that people were struggling with. And uh, actually the, how to, get out of that is just like what you said, right? I have to increase my physical exercise, right? And that's what I, ha I have to maintain that physical routine because the body is trying to put the weight on, right? It's trying to it's trying to save me from the famine that doesn't exist. So I have to go out there. I do that. I have to eat healthily instead of eating, you know, bad fats like bacon. Unfortunately, bacon's a bad fat. Uh, I have to, you know, avocados and nuts and things like that, which uh, aren't as tasty, but, uh, but better for me. So, uh, so, so the exercise and what the, you know, really what the research has shown is 10 minutes of exercise a day for a period of 21 days can really uh, make astounding effects in sort of rewiring my brain for uh, positivity and happiness and things like that. And it doesn't take very long to implement some of these things. Certainly mindfulness meditation is one that's one of the evidence-based practice. Uh, diaphragmatic breathing certainly as well. Uh, EFT tapping, the um, emotional freedom techniques, tapping stuff uh, that works uh, as part of the evidence-based practice as well. But uh, socialization is another thing that increases euthymia. Uh, you know, that emotional evenness that we have, uh, uh, that's something that also increases that. And that's something that we lost, you know, when we went into lockdown. 
Uh, we lost that emotion, that uh, social connection that we had. I remember at the first of COVID-19 had a lot of um, research coming out. Well, it wasn't research. It was, uh, it was people predicting things and saying, this is what we should do. There was some work in Israel on this. Uh, it was some research in Israel that said, looked at um, maintaining contacts, especially with elderly people and what have you. If you couldn't get out and see them, at least call, right? At least call them on the phone or do whatever to maintain those social contacts. That's very important. Uh, two minutes a day, we can do things like the mindfulness meditation. That's all it takes. Doesn't take forever to do that. Two minutes a day for 21 days. There's what the studies show, right? Uh, doing things like sitting down, writing a two-minute email to someone about po something positive, uh, sort of expressing gratitude. Uh, that also works. Journaling about one positive experience I've had in the past 24 hours, just spending a couple of minutes doing that, uh, also works as part of the uh, research that we found that increases that positivity and really rewires the brain, right? Because, because that's what we're talking about. We have all this bad stuff going on, you know, then I start to think bad stuff going, going on, right? You know, it's Hebb's postulate, right? Uh, neurons that fire together, wire together, right? So when I start thinking about all this stuff, that's leading me down that road, right? So really rewiring the brain for positivity and happiness and things like that. Uh, are some of the things that I encourage um, in my private practice, uh, anybody who comes in for stress management, I deal with a lot of different things, but anybody who comes in for stress management gets on their treatment plan, at least diaphragmatic breathing and, and the EFT, right? And they're told to exercise at least 10 minutes a day. But uh, those are just a few things that we can do that really uh, can make a positive difference and affect those things that evolution is trying to thrust on us. Uh, we can sort of start try to balance those out as we as we compete with all of this uh, stress load that we have on top of us. Yeah, I have to say well, the EFT. If you could explain uh, for listeners, I don't think everybody will know what that is. But diaphragmic breathing, I can tell from personal experience, it's a game changer. I mean mm -hmm. that puts the baseline of stress. Like a lot of people say, I'm I'm calm. Um, well, it's a lot of it is the breathing. And I started learning how to do diaphragmic breathing when we breathe shallowly, like we are, we're, are, we're basically our body is telling you that you are, you know, you are in a dangerous place, you're, in a, you're, you're, you're in a fight or flight state almost. So that changing to deep breathing as a baseline is, is very important. When you were speaking about all these evolutionary uh, things that are trying to kill us in a way or uh, trying to help us survive in the sense of putting weight on and, you know, putting us uh, at, a, at a mindset where we're seeking caloric food, which or high fat, high sugar, high fat, high salt, fast food, basically. Um, you know, I, I couldn't help but think this year we're talking about the endocannabinoid system and uh, its effect. And that will have to be an episode in and of itself to speak about the importance of, of that uh, system. But can you uh, just uh, explain what, what you mean, like the, the tapping uh, for, for listeners who may not be familiar with it? Sure. The uh, EFT is emotional freedom techniques. Uh, you're actually literally tapping, taking the fingers on one hand and tapping different places in the body. Uh, one place is um, at the edge of the hand. That's sort of the activation point, it's called. 
Um, then we have, you know, the top of the head, uh, you know, the eyebrows, corners of the eyes, below the nose, uh, point of the chin, collarbone, ribs, etc. But uh, these are all points on the body. Uh, this is the evidence-based research in energy psychology. So we're using those same, the same points that we're tapping on are the same, many of the same points that are used in uh, acupuncture and acupressure and things of that nature. So we're physically tapping firmly on those points to uh, uh, create relaxation in the body. Now there's usually a sort of a little affirmation that you use when you do this. And as you tap, you'll say, even though I have this problem with blank, fill in the blank, whatever your problem is, uh, I deeply and completely accept myself. So you'll do one round of that. You'll do one round of the tapping, the same points over again, where you're focusing just on the problem. So if it was stress, you know, the stress I have as I tap all these points, the stress I'm dealing with. And then the third round of tapping that you do, once again, you hit those same points, but you're saying you're focusing on the positive. You know, I deeply and completely accept myself, this sort of thing. And the results of that are really sort of astounding. Um, I, I've seen the research on it that went from everything to working with anxiety to working with things like frozen shoulder. So it's not just uh, emotional uh, problems. It's also physical problems that you can work with the EFT. It was developed by Gary Craig. And if you're on YouTube, you can find lots of videos on there. If you look up EFT, you'll probably find the Ortners. Uh, Nick Ortner and his family do a lot of that. But Gary Craig also has videos on there. And he uh, he's the one who really invented EFT as we practice it today. But uh, that helps relaxation. It helps pain. Like I said, uh, I was working recently with, uh, <clears throat> with a man who had shingles, uh, and which apparently is very painful. I've never had it myself, but people who had it say it's very painful. But we did. Oh, you just muted yourself, Ron. <laughs> After we so somebody who uh, had called him for hypnosis. Uh, we were doing some hypnosis, um, and um, we also I also introduced the tapping to her, the EFT tapping, because she had fear of driving. She couldn't drive. Uh, she lived in California. She had problems getting around. She couldn't drive anywhere. And um, what happened was, was uh, we taught her the tapping and, and she worked on that. And um, as she worked on that, I just got an email from her uh, recently who said, Dr. Modern, I'm driving. Uh, I'm driving the car, I'm, you know, I'm getting around and doing these things. So lots of good, uh, good uh, things come from the tapping. Uh, for some people, some people don't care for it. Uh, so we have other techniques that we can use, right? We can use things like the diaphragmatic breathing. Uh, most of the, uh, most of the psychiatrists that I've worked with have uh, viewed um, uh, diaphragmatic breathing as a distraction technique sort of cognitive restructuring, you're changing your thinking, if you're focusing on the breathing, you're not focusing on whatever's causing you the, the um, mental discomfort. Uh, however, uh, when I use it, I focus on the uh, physiological effects of that diaphragmatic breathing. It's a vagal nerve stimulation. We use the diaphragmatic breathing for vagal nerve stimulation. And when the vagus nerve is stimulated, that causes the release of serotonins, melatonins, and endorphins in the body. So uh, all of those help us to, uh, to relax and what have you. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I have to say, I, I was uh, introduced to that tapping technique techniques uh 
during a course on anxiety, uh, which was looking at how to, you know, that wasn't one of the main parts, but it was taught to me by one of my professors and I found it to be quite helpful. And I can imagine uh, that's what I was going to say. Some people may see that as a cognitive distraction. Uh, I would say more so than the um, more so than the diaphragmic breathing exactly for that reason you gave. And there's also some studies on the uh, effects on blood pressure of changing, like doing these deep, deep breathing uh, exercises. I found also, I don't know if you use this, but I found one very simple technique that people can do is the tension release or tension relax exercises where you uh, accentuate some kind of tensions like in the shoulders or even with the hands where you make a clenched fist very tightly and tighten all the muscles of the arm and then release, let go, synchronize that with the breath. I found that to be quite uh, powerful, especially in, you know, in situations where you may, you know, a person may be anxious, very stressed and has to do something like, as you said, like drive a car or even more like give a speech, right? For people who are about to give a lecture, give a speech, they're nervous, they have tension. Well, that is a way to, uh, to lower that uh, stress, that, that anxiety on a physical level, because the, you know, whenever we have a mental state, we have a physical state. And so I would say, uh, yeah, so that would be good as a relief or a release valve. And, uh, but in general, uh, you know, the, the idea is that we should also, and now I'm talking more about anxiety, but also like learn to uh, live through it, like experience it, accept it and be able to deal with it. Also, at times we cannot have these, you know, release valves, but in times when they're really needed, they're very helpful. So what, what do you think about that in terms of the stress effect? Because this is a little bit different. As you said, you have, you know, you have people in the helping profession and uh, feeling burned out, feeling super stressed. So how do you deal with the stress? Like in the same way, I just gave the example of the anxiety. Right. Uh, one of the things, you know, uh, a lot of times what we get out when we get uh, the stress with professionals is we're dealing with people who are burnt out. And that's sort of the more of the uh, group work I do and things like that with people. So we work on uh, resiliency, which, you know, has several domains in there. We have the cognitive domain in resiliency. And um, for that, we're doing the cognitive restructuring, things of that nature, different types of cognitive restructuring, cognitive phenomenological reports. Uh, Peter Singe, you know, in more business focused, will often use the left-hand column technique, which is just still more, uh, uh, still more cognitive restructuring. It's just done in a different way. Uh, also, we work on emotional skills, uh, and these are social skills, right? These are social skills that people often don't, uh, don't uh, they find themselves in positions of control. And so they don't practice these social skills so much, maybe, uh, especially at home. You know, at work, they might be able to get by with it, but when they go home, uh, they act like they do at work. And that leads to some bad, that leads to some bad home life. Okay, when I go and start giving orders at home, my wife, uh, 
uh, my wife looks askance at that. So uh, social skills, you know, uh, especially empathy, right? Understanding, responding to the feelings of others is something uh, everybody thinks they have it. But uh, when we start to practice the skill, we find most people don't really have a whole lot of it. Uh, also, the physical aspect, that physical domain of resiliency, uh, which is diet, exercise, sleep, that sort of thing. Uh, and then the, really the spiritual part of that, there's a spiritual domain to resiliency as well, which is, um, you know, expressing the gratitude. This is the reason I mentioned those exercises before, right, where I'm just writing a gratitude email or looking at something positive that happened to me during the day. Uh, engaging in uh, relationships with other people, you know, prayer, meditation, those sorts of things. Uh, those are really, when we were dealing with professional people, doctors, nurses, things like this, uh, those are sorts of the things we practice on to develop that resiliency. Uh, because, you know, burnout is really uh, exhaustion, cynicism, and perceived inefficacy, right? That's what drives burnout. So if we're going to, so if we're going to, correct that, we need job-related vigor, uh, dedication, and absorption in the work, right? Uh, I mean, those come from the Maslach burnout inventory, right? Those are, those are things that, uh, that we need to work on. Uh, and these help us do that. These give us skills. These sorts of resiliency things give us skills that we can help uh, work on those sorts of things. Also, one of the things we work on in the workplace uh, and I, in, in my private practice with individuals, I also help them uh, find something like this, but also we talk about flow at work. And actually this concept of flow and, uh, and stress reduction um, really came upon me. I was uh, listening to a podcast of Psychology 360 and you had on there uh, developing flow with a virtual reality. And at the time I was looking for an executive stress management program uh, to propose uh, that I was working on. And uh, that really got me going down that, uh, that pathway. Uh, certainly been aware of flow for many different years. The, the concept that Cheek Sent Me High came up with, sort of the godfather of flow passed away last, was it last year? Or was it two years ago? <laughs> We're in that, in that fuzzy phase again. Uh, he passed away recently. I think it was last year. Um, or yeah. Okay. Anyway, uh, that flow uh, concept that he had, that flow being that peak human experience, right? So when you talked uh, previously about the difference between eustress and distress, right? Anytime we're talking about this stuff uh, with the problems that we have, we're talking about distress, right? Flow is stress, but it's eustress, right? It's a good stress. It's a the stress that I want. In fact, that's sort of what I have. When you get to get flow, I have to have a high degree of challenge but also have a high degree of skill, right? So, uh, so that high degree of challenge produces stress, but it's eustress, right? Uh, if all I have is high challenge and no skill, then I just plain distressed, right? But uh, that really uh, uh, started me on that path, looking at really how to develop uh, personal virtual reality programs to uh, help uh, stress management, especially for executives, uh, because executives, you know, don't like to admit that they have stress. That you know. Uh, they have no weaknesses, so, so so they don't need to work on anything. Uh, so they say. Uh, now we do know from the from the research literature, and we have lots of good research literature on this, lots of longitudinal studies and what have you. That says the higher you are in the hierarchy, the less stress you actually have, uh, as opposed to the people on the low end. But uh, they don't want to admit they have any at all or have any problems related to it. But uh, so that's sort of where I was going with that was to develop sort of. Uh, 
personal virtual reality programs to work with stress management for, uh, for executives. Um, we didn't get very far. That was sort of cut short. Uh, but uh, but still thinking about it a lot, still uh, still working in that sort of direction. Yeah, and and of course the flow state is, as you mentioned, in terms of work, is like that. I I see uh, flow sometimes also outside of work in terms of gathering inspiration, doing things like well, one thing that we didn't mention yet that was extremely helpful to me. And I think a lot of people who have tried it is uh, getting more the opposite of virtual reality, but getting more close to nature uh, during times of these, you know, these stressful times, maybe times of sickness. And um, and I find I find that in when I'm doing, for example, hikes, hiking mountains or being in the forest, I get a lot of inspiration and time just, you know, part of the flow state is that we lose this kind of, uh, the time perception gets altered in the sense that we don't notice time passes very quickly. Um, you know, we lose the perception and I find that to be one very helpful, but of course this varies greatly between personalities and, uh, types of people that, uh, we may find, but everybody, I think can find this kind of flow state somewhere and um yeah you you mentioned this uh this uh you know the the spiritual realm is really important as i said like i had some difficulties during the high stress times just uh doing it you know inside or even i became more um pragmatic in a way of uh and, and it was part of the grounding that that's i mean i was like trying to just be in control of the things I could control um, just to keep some kind of um, mental stability, if you can <laughs> call it that. So, right. Yeah. No. Yeah. Def definitely. That green space is definitely important. In fact, we know that from the research, right, that that's part of what increases euthymia, not only exercise, but if we can exercise in green space, if we can get out there into nature and what have you. Uh, McEwen's done a lot of work on that. That's, you know, stresses, stresses his field. So uh, but uh, yeah, we know we know that that, uh, you know, the more we, time we can spend in nature, the more time we can spend in green space, the better that is for us as far as stress reduction goes yeah and you know on another note if we're going to be spiritual we can say uh that nature forests mountains uh seas whatever nature is the great temple it is the true temple all other symbols or all other uh things we may uh connect with our representations of such right we have we connect with something bigger in uh, nature so we see some kind of design at least that's how i've uh how i come to see it you know even uh doing meditations outside has been uh one much more rewarding than indoor and uh do meditating and focusing on the simplest things like you know things we walk by every day we take for granted look at uh beautiful structure of a leaf on a tree or something like that really focus you, you can see some uh, amazing things just uh, in the simplest of uh, things so yeah yeah you know and, 
No, no, go ahead. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I, I think uh, some other people would probably agree with you on that. You know, you've talked about diaphragmatic breathing. You've talked about being out in nature. And that reminds me of Wim Hof, right? Uh, a crazy Dutchman who has his own method, uh, you know, vagal nerve stimulation for uh, Wim Hof is, uh, you know, diaphragmatic breathing, cold therapy, uh, usually which is done out in nature and, uh, and commitment. So that's uh, certainly... Um, things that things that he uses when you were both of those things together sort of reminded me of him <laughs> well i cannot lie uh i have been influenced by some of wim hof's uh, methods techniques and uh i've been doing the cold exposure now for about five years so every morning and now you know when it I start complaining when it gets uh, too warm that you, you don't get as cold of water. And right. uh, it, it has been a game changer. And, you know, and it's interesting because I was telling, I was telling a friend the other day, if you do uh, the cold exposure for long enough, you, you start to see that you, your body gets used to it. And also you like, you could do like a cold immersion or cold, very cold shower. Uh, for you know five minutes or so without integrating the breathing but you see it's a totally different experience when you do when you do integrate you know that deep breathing that calmness inside that makes it i mean that makes it much more um i don't want to say curative but much more therapeutic and i i just see that and and part of that is also like mind over matter at a certain point because once you get used to it enough and you you stick to it uh you can start seeing like well your body you know your body might be at a lower uh at a lower temperature but you can tell the mind like this is warm this feels you know this feels good and it's quite amazing i mean we under i think we greatly underestimate what we are able to do just you know with our own with our own body, with our own physiology. Sure. I mean, yeah. you know, that's one of the things that uh, Wim has shown is that we do have control even over the autonomic nervous system, right? Uh, I'm yes. thinking of one of the one of the experiments that they did. And, you know, Wim could just be a freak, right? He could just be a freak of nature. Uh, didn't work for anybody else. We know that's not true. Uh, and part of the way is we just stick to the research, right? We know that uh, I'm thinking of one experiment, especially where they took a control group and then they took the experimental group and he did the experimental group where he taught other people his method, right? With the diaphragmatic breathing and cold therapy and what have you. And they give both groups uh, a case of the flu, right? Uh, obviously clinical setting and what have you. But the people who, uh, the people who didn't uh, have his method, you know, the control group, uh, you know, got full-blown cases of the flu. Whereas, uh, you know, the experimental group, uh, they may have had some symptoms and what have you, but it certainly didn't last as long. And what he was really showing was that this is something that we can do to affect the immune system, right? Uh, which is supposed to be part of the autonomic system, which we're not supposed to have any control over. But, uh, and that's something that's very important in stress management as well. We know that stress suppresses the immune system. So using that diaphragmatic breathing, that cold therapy, getting that vagal nerve stimulation uh, really helps with that as well. It helps boost the immune system. Um, so, because um, uh, 
what, like I said, that stress, you know, that, that stress lowers the immune system and that's, that, that opens us up, especially during COVID, right? I kept thinking, you know, I sort of kept marketing along that, that line was, you know, this is a virus. We're more open to viruses when our immune system isn't working quite right. So, uh, and what have you, but yeah, uh, Wim's, uh, Wim's uh, done some research out there and uh, lots of research in that area that says, uh, you know, the diaphragmatic breathing, the cold therapy, and especially when you put those things together, uh, we can do things that uh, that we're not supposed to not supposed to be able to do. But uh, now that we know that we can do them, it becomes just a matter of why aren't we right? Why aren't we doing these things? Yeah, no, exactly. And uh, that's these are all great points. And uh, I have to say, I wanted to. I wanted to also reemphasize one point you made before and what, what you said with people who are socially isolated. Uh, another, you know, another thing is that really trying to seek out connection. One thing during the pandemic that at the beginning that I found was I was connecting to family members that I, you know, I would rarely uh, talk to. And it was quite a rewarding experience. So even just reaching out, maybe stepping out of the comfort zone for that all these things like we, we just talked about well, cold exposure can be quite a stepping out of the comfort zone for some people but for others it's you know sending a simple message uh trying to undo these cementified or um you know these these um, these habits that we've we've taken on and i wanted to ask you since you you know you you mentioned you work with uh people who are court mandated, um, people who are, you know, they, they don't have a choice. They get there. It's a, it's obviously a, a better alternative to, you know, to go to psychotherapy and uh, counseling than to go to jail. Uh, but what has been, do you have some, um, some stories to tell about uh, people who you've worked with and uh, like how they've maybe, uh, implemented some of these techniques some of these ways of being uh in their lives because i can imagine there's um, a lot of resistance at first right with uh, a lot of people you know people uh, especially substance abusers who have a relationship that is uh obviously has some rewards if they're using sub a substance there's got to be some good into it not just the bad part uh so how they you know, what has been helpful for them and some, some of the experience with that? Mm -hmm. um, as far as, uh, as far as substance uh, use goes, um, you're right. I mean, it is a relationship. Uh, it's more of a pleasure relationship than happiness uh, relationship. Uh, you know, we do things that cause us uh, immediate pleasure, but long-term uh, unhappiness, you know, long-term misery in our lives. So a lot of that is, uh, I, I, generally use a lot of reality therapy. I'm reality therapy certified. And that's sort of the way that I look at things is through choice theory and reality therapy, William Glasser's uh, model. And uh, so really helping them find other ways to get that, um, to develop happiness in their lives. In choice theory, reality therapy, we'd say meeting their needs, getting them what they want in ways that don't hurt them or others, right? So certainly substance use, it hurts them, it hurts others. It's a bad choice. Uh, so helping them 
make those plans. And a lot of that has to do with relapse prevention, right? Where we're looking at relapse prevention plans. What, you know, what is it that leads you to this? And then how can we correct those? Uh, understanding at the same time that I'm going to have a period of time, you know, as I, as I use, especially something like uh, the stimulants, right? Especially something uh, cocaine, but especially meth, right? Methamphetamines. Uh, as I use those, uh, that hedonic set point that I have uh, that, you know, the normal things in life, right? Flow, right? <laughs> that it goes there. You know, the two biggest pleasures we have in life are food and sex, right? And those are the two biggest ones. Well, you know, math is about 40 times more powerful than the best of any of those we're going to have. Uh, so uh, eventually after we use it so much, the set point moves, right? And this is sort of the allostasis, right? That we're looking at. So that set point moves and gets and gets a little higher to accommodate all of that uh, stimulant use. And then when we stop using, the set point doesn't just drop down again. That set point is there. So I'm going to have a, a period of time uh, that I, I'm going to, you know, really be anhedonic, right? That I'm anything I do isn't going to make me happy anymore. And uh, until eventually that set point will drop back down, but helping people get through those sorts of things, right? A lot of that is just education on that, uh, that, you know, this will go down. You're just going to have to, uh, you know, work on ways to deal with this and how can we do that? A lot of that is stress management, you know, especially when we look at a relapse prevention plan, what are the things that cause you to get stressed? that uh, then cause you to want to use, right? I mean, we have people, places, and things, right? Uh, so the people and the places are usually fairly obvious when you're working in that area. It's the things, not so much. The things people don't necessarily pay attention to like stress, right? Uh, like the stress that I find myself under and what have you. So uh, those can lead to relapse. So working that relapse prevention plan is certainly very important in those. And if you approach that from, like you said, I, I deal, with, deal with highly resistant clients, right, uh, for mo most of the time. Uh, so really helping them to buy into that is that choice theory reality therapy model, right? Uh, reality therapy is a very patient-driven model. You know, what do you want, right? I know what the courts want, right? But what do you want out of this? What do you, what do you want to see? What do you want to get out of this? And then helping them. Uh, get that uh, in a way that doesn't hurt them or others is really the sort of the big picture on that. And then you can get down into the weeds and what have you. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, if you go into uh, substance use treatment, wanting to be the savior of people, you know, I want to see them change and I want to see them change in front of me, even in intensive residential treatment. If you want to see that happen, you're in the wrong field. Okay. Uh, what we know is from the research is that there's a critical mass, right, that people eventually reach a critical mass and say, I've had enough, okay, and, and, and we'll stop. If given the sufficient tools to be able to do that, uh, they'll reach that critical mass and say, that's enough. I don't want any more of it. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's going to happen with you, <laughs> right? They may leave intensive residential treatment and go work with an individual counselor, and it happens then, right? You're like, wow, I really wish that could have happened with me. No, you, you have to be, you have to know what the research says, and you have to know that you were a contributing part of that critical mass, <laughs> that if your part wasn't there, it, you know, they wouldn't have got there then. So that's the reason where you find uh, fulfillment, you know, when we, when we talk about, uh, 
you know, uh, in the job, finding some sort of, uh, you know, what impact have I made, right? What impact have I made in people's lives? Uh, you have to be happy with that. <laughs> and, and, you know, not so much in, uh, not so much in the other things that I do and, uh, you know, and a lot of the other things that I do with the hypnosis and, and, um, and just generally talking to people with stress management and things like that, you know, we measure that stuff and we expect there to be uh, a decrease in it. So, you know, we always measure before we start out. And then after we make the interventions, we'll measure it again and see where they are. Uh, and a lot of that's subjective, but it doesn't matter whether it's subjective or objective, unless I'm going to publish it, right? And it needs to be objective. But uh, the subjective stuff, as long as they're feeling better, as, as long as they're finding relief uh, from what we're doing, then that's, that's you know, what, what we want to see with that. But uh, as far as the, the substance use, that's a particularly uh, interesting field, uh, working with that and... Um, uh, I think I, I think I published a paper on that uh, related to reality therapy in one of the uh, International Choice Theory and Reality Therapy journals. Um, I don't remember which one it was, but it sort of looked at what in reality therapy we'd call the pictures in the quality world, things that get us what we want the best in our lives and uh, how that putting that in more um, terms of learning and memory and things like that, long term memory and uh, really looking at it from that perspective. But that picture of alcohol and other drugs gets to be a picture in the quality world, which never really goes away, right? Uh, that's the thing about pictures in the quality world. They don't ever go away because they met our needs. And anything that meets our needs like that gets to be there and it stays there. That's the reason relapse is always an issue, right? Now, somebody who's gone for 30 years and hasn't relapsed, they've been able to successfully find other ways to meet their needs. Okay, they found other ways to do that. So they choose to make that choice. They choose to do those things. And eventually over time, I mean, you know, once again, Hebb's postulate, right? Uh, neurons that fire together, wire together. I start going, that's my default. You know, the positive things are now my default. Whereas previously the negative things, uh, alcohol and other drugs was my default. Now this is my default. Getting over that initial period, waiting for that hypnotic set point to drop, teaching people skills, how to, how to go about getting those other things met. That's sort of the, uh, sort of the trenches of uh, substance abuse work and what have you. And uh, can, be, can be difficult, but I've found that, like I said, approaching it from a reality therapy standpoint of, you know, what do you want in your life? Right. Uh, not in the next 15 minutes, not, not maybe not in the next 15 hours. But what do you want in your life uh, as we move forward? What, what's the you know, what's that picture? What's what will meet these needs for you the best? So that's sort of how I approach that work is through the is through the choice theory, reality therapy. OK, yeah, no, those are you made some great points there also about therapists. Uh, that sounds like a lot of ego issue when a therapist wants to be the savior, the healer, while well, you're putting yourself first, not the client first. So that's an important note. And uh, also about, you know, we, we are cementing habits. This is a very, you know, layman's way of saying it, but we're cementing habits. Our, our routines are really important. And as you just said, it's like we we develop habits and modes of thinking, modes of being. And the, you know, if you see certain habits, just having a little introspection about what is going on, um, what am I, you know, what am I doing on a day-to-day -day basis? And I think 
uh, one of the big things, at least for me, that I see, um, you know, uh, going into behaviors that are not constructive, uh, even addictive at times, like game, even gaming, you know, we're talking about substance use, but there's a lot of addiction to games, uh, online games or gambling. Um, very often it comes from a place of uh, dissatisfaction and being in, uh, you know, not finding the time to do the things I just, I said before. Um, so, you know, lip for me, it was living in, in a city, being, feeling overcrowded and uh, not seeing green spaces put me in a place that was, I needed some other outlet as a form of escape, as a form of entertainment or whatever, whatever else. But I think this is important because it is also a, a way of alleviating stress, which is not necessarily constructive. And so we get to the idea of you, who you're working with, who are you talking to, especially for listeners, like what, uh, you know, what is the story that you're telling about yourself? Where, you know, where's your past? How do you tell your past? How do you experience your present? And where do you see yourself? of going so and we may have a rough idea still i mean we don't have to, we can't predict the future but still we can we can get a little agency on it and so that to me is uh really fundamental and i think getting back to the stress thing like the idea of knowing what things you are in, in control of because the worst thing i think is when you're um feeling completely helpless or um out of control, uh, things, you know, there's things you cannot change. And, and I guess the, I guess with the pandemic, that was an example, because it was things that, you know, was things were happening that were much bigger than us. And we had very little control over them, right? So what, you know, and, and this would be, I think, a, a good way, like the last part of this interview was really, like finding that space in yourself or, or things you can you can control the choices i had uh, edith egger who wrote the book the choice uh holocaust survivor and she she was uh you know she was adamant about this we always make we always have a choice even in the most harrowing situations of how we you know how we interpret the the events how we uh what we treasure and how we react Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's certainly what Viktor Frankl said as well. Right. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, so uh, the, you know, the basis for logotherapy and what have you, but yeah, I mean, that perceived control is very important. Uh, you know, the Stoics were sort of the progenitors of cognitive behavioral therapy to begin with. Right. Yep. Uh, so, you know, and uh, Epictetus and Seneca, Marcus Aurelius, the great Roman Stoics, but even back before then Zeno and what have you. Uh, you know, all said that, you know, happiness in life comes from knowing what I can control and what I can't control, right? right. And when I try to control what I have no control over, then that's when I'm going to be very unhappy. Uh, and the only thing that we really control is uh, how we choose to think and how we choose to behave. And if you're a strict cognitivist, cognitivist then uh, you know that behavior is controlled by our thinking, right? So, uh, so really looking at that thinking, doing some cognitive restructuring, and that's very important in the stress management from the perspective that you sort of talked about of perceived control. 
because we know that the more control I think I have, then the less stress I have. And oppositely as well is that the less control I think I have, the more stress I think I have. So I think that was a big part of when we first went into lockdown and everything else. And we had to show our papers to move around you know, the country or move around the state that we felt like that control we had was uh, certainly infringed upon. And uh, that uh, did not sit well with people. People became very frustrated. And I think, once again, I think this is what the research is now showing, that that sort of thing is what caused the spike in many of the mental health problems we have. And when we talk about mental health problems, remember that the body responds to stress in only a certain number of ways, right? I mean, we're all the same creature. We all have the same system, you know, whether we're in Prague or whether we're in, uh, you know, Bertram, Texas, right? Uh, we've, we've all got the same, we're all working with the same system. So the body's going to respond to that in certain ways. And it, when we become stressed, what we're going to see is those things like depression, PTSD symptoms, mood and anxiety disorders, those sorts of things are what's going to come up regardless of what the stressor is. Okay. So we're going to see those things go up. And I think that was a lot of it, like you said, when we first uh, went into lockdown at the beginning of the pandemic, I think that's why we saw the numbers go up. And then as things sort of loosened up and what have you, I think now uh, that's why they're, why they're beginning to drop some, except for those special categories like eating disorders, right? Uh, but, uh, but certainly that perceived control is especially important. Okay. And uh, I can do that. I can do that with cognitive restructuring, right? I think this is where the saying came from of, you know, a man's home is his castle. I, th I think that was sort of some cognitive restructuring uh, to deal with, uh, you know, to get away from the work world. I go to work, mm. I'm at the bottom of the totem pole. So I've got lots of stress on me and I come home, but at home, I'm the king of my castle, right? Or the queen or whoever, right? I'm the ruler of my own castle when I'm at home. And that gives me a sense of control. That makes my stress go down. So it may have came from somewhere else, but I, I sort of like to frame it in those terms. But uh, definitely that perceived control, uh, the latitude, it gives me latitude in, uh, in what I can, you know, at least think I'm doing because the perceived world is really is what is important, right? I mean, the real world is out there, but we don't uh, uh, may never know it. Right. I mean, yeah. uh, all we have is our perceived world. So if we can make changes in that, doing some cognitive restructuring, then that can definitely reduce our stress and help us move through um, these times, which we see we, we you know, we're we're. Like I said, you know, the pandemic sort of fading now in uh, in response to other things, right? Uh, the conflict in the, in the Ukraine and what have you that um, is causing people to uh, get nervous. And that stress is right back on us, right? That stress is right back on us again. We thought we got rid of some of it. Now it's piled back on us again. Right. Yeah, it's uh, and it's quite, uh, quite bizarre. I mean, looking at it from here, especially if you're, you're close by to it, you might, you know, we might, we have people we, we know there. So it's, uh, it's quite in our face. Uh, you, you're a little bit more distant, but still, again, with the media's influence, we are right. all impacted. For me, I, I found that yes, the perception is reality. I mean, from a, from the deepest sense of it, I don't mean it just superficially. I mean, you change your perception, you you really see everything differently, events and uh, people and um, how you relate to others. But 
I found personally, I found that, uh, you know, behavior comes first. That's a, at least for me, meaning I, and, and again, in my philosophical outlook, I am far from a behaviorist, but in terms of pragmatism and how I uh, act, I find that, in, you know, pushing the behavior impacts the cognition more so than the cognition impacts the behavior. I know this is a, uh, an old, very old argument in psychology, but, um, you know, uh, doing strict, well, not necessarily strict at first, but changing routines. Uh, you know, you want to get up early to, to, to do something, work, or have your uh, run before work. Just do it. Just do that. And then your mind will adapt accordingly. If I had to think about, you know, the Wim Hof stuff, I, I don't think I would, uh, I would have gotten to it. Uh, uh, but of course, after the, the, you know, after the initial shock or whatever challenge it may be, just seeing you are doing that and, and able to gives the agency and gives that perception and that inner thinking, like, I can do it. You know, I can, and I, and for, you know, for some things and some people, everyone's different. Some people may find that that inner talk is the key for me. It's more the behavioral implementation, but that's again, from personal uh, perspective. Now, just to finish, it was uh, great to have you on. I, and just some key takeaways, if you're going to summarize all of it, because I think this is really useful for people listening, uh, key takeaways in these stressful times what we can do we said right okay I'll let you get to all right and let me and let me just agree with you before before i get to that you know reality therapy okay. is much, is much more uh, you know in, in reality therapy it's always looking more at the behavior so we have the procedures that lead to change which are what do you want and then what are you doing to get what you want uh, now thinking and behavior are on the same axle of our total behavior car that front axle of that car but they, they reality therapy would tend to agree with you it's like it's not what are you thinking it's what are you doing i tend to focus on the cognition because of the because of the population that i worked with in uh, criminality because that is what mm -hmm. they need those are the skills they need uh, we know that from the research cognitive restructuring social skills and problem solving and uh, that uh, reduces recidivism so anyway uh, some takeaways as far as this goes i would say the big takeaway is implement stress management into your daily life don't wait until you feel stressed because at that point it's too late. You're already behind the curve. We passed the good old days where you could implement that stress management, wait until you're stressed, implement the stress management and then have it have some effect because the way things are going these days, by the time you get around to it, you're going to have 10 more things piled on top of you uh, and you're going to be behind the curve. So implement whatever it happens to be you know, uh, diaphragmatic breathing, EFT tapping, mindfulness meditation, uh, diet, exercise, socialization, making sure you're getting good sleep, you know, all of these things, you know, uh, relaxation response, uh, Benson's work on that and what have you, uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction, you know, these sorts of things, whatever it is, find something that works for you that you like, and you don't have to stick to one thing, 
right? Yeah. <laughs> you can you can do many different things, okay? As long as you're doing something every day. And like I said, we went over those things. It's just two minutes a day for most of those things. Exercise, 10 minutes a day. That's all it needs. Keep it up for 21 days. That will make a difference. That'll help you rewire your brain. And I think that's really where we need to go these days because we're, we're sort of fighting uh, biology here, right? We're sort of fighting evolution as we have all of these chronic stressors on us leading to that cumulative stress. Uh, so we, we, can't, uh, we can't give in. We can't uh, relax on this, <laughs> sort of relax on this, because if we do, then we're going to just be sort of overwhelmed by stress. So keep, you know, practice, find something that works for you, keep it up, practice it every day as far as stress management goes and know that change is possible, right? Uh, know that change is possible. Uh, I've seen it happen in, uh, you know, uh, some bad case scenarios, but people who adopt these things are able to make significant changes in your life. Um, that's, you know, what we've seen from the Stoics on have, have told us, right, that we make these changes in our lives and uh, we do things differently and we get something differently. But if we don't do anything different, we're not going to get anything different. So uh, so do that and uh, keep moving forward. Uh, have faith that it will happen. And um, I think those are just keep moving forward. No, those are great. Yeah, great takeaways and very important and just to remember we are incarnated we are here we can uh experiment what works we have uh, you know we have a mind we can uh, alter we have routines we can play with and see what works for it, for everyone you know to be the best you can be you know to be the best version of yourself so Thank you very much Ron it was a pleasure to have you on and hopefully we will do this again my pleasure, Simon. Glad to finally meet you. Yes, you too.